just as all negative changes build on each other and you, you know, create that downward spiral, the same thing happens with positive changes. When you create a major positive change in your life, you start building an upward spiral. There are no swinging pendulums in this episode about hypnosis, I assure you. Today, I am joined by Meaningful Life hypnotist Doug Sands from Anywhere Hypnosis to debunk some myths and explain the healing benefits of this practice. Doug specializes in using hypnosis to help people with anxiety after using meditation and self-hypnosis in his own life. In this episode, we are talking about the amazing power the brain has to help heal the body and the benefits of hypnosis for ailments you might not expect. Doug, thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. So you do hypnosis on the stage as well as helping people with consulting hypnosis, hypnotherapy. Tell me how you chose that as a career path. <laughs> it definitely wasn't my first, my first path. I thought I was going to, to be a, a fiction writer and I was going to college for that. And I realized that I wasn't really satisfied with the way my life was going. So I ended up dropping out of college and bouncing around the U.S. doing a bunch of seasonal work. And it came down to a hike in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And I got lost in a blizzard. And that experience coming so close to pretend, potentially freezing to death, it shook me up so much that I realized I couldn't keep pushing down the issues that I dealt with. I'd been dealing with uh, depression and anxiety up until that point and having some success, but not really figuring it out. And so that's when I discovered uh, meditation. And for me growing up in, in Wisconsin in a very rural area, there, it was so far out of left field that I had never even heard of it really before. So when I started practicing it, I, I was fascinated by it. And I started doing research on the science behind it. And that's when I discovered the link between meditation and hypnosis. And looking at the brainwave patterns behind the two of them, they're actually pretty similar. And when I learned that hypnosis is more than just a comedy routine and more than just stage shows, I was hooked. And so I started learning some basic techniques to help myself. And when I saw just how effective those rudimentary techniques were for me, I knew I had to get certified. And so now it's what I do full time. Yeah, that's awesome. So did you start off with doing the consulting, would you call it hypnotherapy? Is that the right? Hypnotherapy is a loaded term because... <laughs> to be a hypnotherapist, you technically have to have a license as a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of, you know, so-called hypnotherapists who are running that risk because they're not technically licensed that way. I call myself a consulting hypnotist or a clinical hypnotist because it's just easier with the legal workaround, especially in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you started with the consulting side of things and then mm -hmm. did you move more into the stage performing stuff? How did that work? So when I started off, I did a little bit of both, but I think I found traction in the, in the stage side of things first. And I was doing some small stage shows and I had a bunch lined up right when COVID hit and like overnight, the entire business was off the map because you can't really gather, you know, 500 people for a show in that. And I had been dabbling in the consulting side and doing some small, small sessions for a few people, but I did not have the business infrastructure set up quite then. And so when I, when I really had to do a quick pivot, like so many other businesses did, 
But I think looking back, it was very, very rewarding because I had been putting off that thing that initially got me into hypnosis. And it was kind of this, this kick in the pants to say, you know, this is what you actually wanted to do in the first place. This is what you should be doing. I'm very excited to get back into stage shows once everything opens up with COVID. But I think the, the consulting side is probably going to be the main part of my business from now on. Mm, awesome. Tell me, how does hypnosis actually work? <laughs> it's, it's very similar to meditation, as I mentioned. It's all about getting people to a relaxed state where their brainwaves are actually slowing down. So to, to give a brief overview of the brainwaves, in, in everyday speech, like we're having right now, our brainwaves are hovering in that frequency that we call beta. And that's somewhere between 12 and 20 hertz. And anything above that is considered gamma frequency. And that's really going in solo meditation. Anything below that, you're heading towards sleep, you're heading towards meditate or guided meditation and uh, hypnosis. You have below beta, you have alpha, which is like a light trance. And below that, you have theta. And that's that golden state of hypnosis. That's the really creative state that we pass through when we are on our way to sleep. And that's kind of why hypnosis looks like sleep. But when you're in hypnosis, you're hearing every single word the hypnotist is saying. And so in a typical session, after we first break down the misconceptions of hypnosis and then decide exactly what they want to work on in their own terms, uh, we go through what is called an induction. And these uh, inductions are different techniques. They're either language patterns or they're physical inductions that use a little bit of, of body work. They get people to this deep theta state because when you're in that state, you are, you're doing two things. On one side of it, you're activating the creative part of your mind. And the unconscious, it doesn't speak in language like you or I do. It speaks in thoughts, feelings, and images. And that's why we get that gut feeling when something is wrong. That's our unconscious telling us something. When we are in that theta sp space and our minds are a little more creative, we are better able to communicate with it in a language that it understands. And the second part of getting to theta state is that we are more suggestible. And I say that with a caveat is that you are never suggestible for something that goes against your own morals. When you're working with someone in hypnosis, they, uh, their mind is always listening and their mind is always working to protect them. If you say anything or do anything that violates that trust, it's going to bring them out of trance. But when they're in that theta state, that critical part of their mind that judges whether a a suggestion is beneficial or not, it's a little more permissive. And when you give a beneficial suggestion, it allows that suggestion to go into the unconscious mind, that part of our minds that store our identity and our memories. It's essentially like fast tracking a habit rather than taking, I don't know, 20 to 28 days to build a habit. You can really build it in, I don't know, a 60 minute hypnosis session. And then at the end of it, we wrap up, we make sure all the changes are solidified and then we bring them back up out of, back to you know beta frequency. And there's usually a couple of minutes where they're a little bit fuzzy and then uh, make sure they're all good to go and send them on their way. Awesome, awesome. So you talked about breaking down some of those misconceptions when people first come in. What are some of the common concerns you might get or questions you get asked about the idea of being hypnotized? I get the question of mind control all the time. Mm -hmm. People ask, are you going to turn me into a Cold War assassin or something? 
And it's, it doesn't work that way. And we, we touched on that. Like we're working with that part of us that is responsible for our safety. I actually had a, a, a hypnotist in the, in the business who tested this informally with some volunteers. They gave these volunteers five different suggestions and four were mildly beneficial and one was mildly negative. I think it was, you'll give me $5 after the session. Every single time they hit that negative suggestion, it brought the subject out of trance because they'd broken that trust, that rapport that they'd built up with the person. Mm -hmm. So the idea of mind control, people often ask about, what about stage shows? You know, they're not, they're doing things that are outside of their, their normal. In stage shows, there's that unspoken contract between a hypnotist and the volunteers. When someone comes on stage, they knew beforehand they're probably going to do some ridiculous things. And they accepted that because no one really wants to watch someone who's just going to go on stage and sit in a chair. And on stage, they're not doing anything that is completely out of their, out of their moral code of ethics. They might be dancing or singing and then doing things more confidently, but it's essentially just about removing those limitations to those things. They're not hurting anyone. They're not hurting themselves or doing anything dangerous like that. Because if you gave them a suggestion like that, it would bring them out of trance and it would essentially ruin the show. I often also get the question, can I get stuck in hypnosis? And that one, that one falls for the same reasons because your mind is eventually gonna wake you up so that you can go to the bathroom or go get some food. It wants to you know, keep you alive. And I think the third biggest misconception of what hypnosis can do is that people think it's like a, a magic wand that you just wave. When someone comes in for weight loss, sometimes actually one person asked if I'd be able to help them drop 50 pounds by the end of my first session. It doesn't work that way. It's about changing the, the motivations and the identities behind that. And then the body catches up. And so when we're working on a big problem, like for me, I specialize in anxiety relief. When I'm tackling a problem as big as anxiety, We've got to break that down into individual steps that we can tackle with multiple sessions. And so, yes, you can tackle a session or a problem in a single session, depending on how large it is. But I've found that it's much more elegant to have at least a couple sessions to really wrap up loose ends and make sure that change is going to really last for the rest of their life. Mm. Yeah. So can you make a permanent change with a hypnosis session? Once that habit is formed, is that permanent or is there room for it to slip back into previous behavior? For most things, it is permanent. I will say there is, I mean, we're all changeable. To give you an example, if um, someone comes to me for stopping smoking and we effectively you know, end that habit, and 30 years down the road, something that really traumatic happens in their life, uh, they might resort back to that, that smoking habit because their mind remembers at some level that that was what they did to feel calm at one point in their life. And they might be grasping at straws. Again, I can't protect all my clients. Things happen out in the real world and sometimes changes fall apart. Uh, for most of the changes though, they, they are permanent. And I think it all comes down to just how willing a person is to make that change. Mm. What I see a lot of the time is people, you know, they ask me in, in a complimentary uh, strategy session, they'll ask, can you fix this problem? And I say, it's not really me fixing the problem. It's me helping you 
fix that problem. They have to be willing to make that change. And it's all about reaching that point that we call threshold. And threshold is that idea that you can say three things really congruently. One, something needs to change. Two, it has to be me that changes. And three, it has to happen right now. And when I'm speaking with a potential client and I realize they're not really a threshold, they just want to see if it's going to work and want to test it out. That's not really a good fit. And they're probably not going to get the results that they're expecting out of hypnosis. Mm. Mm, that's really interesting. So what kind of issues and like problems can hypnosis help people with? The more I learn about hypnosis, the more I'm just amazed that, that you can use these on so many different things. I think the reason is that every single problem that we have has some mental component. So I got into it for anxiety relief, but it helps with all kinds of mental illnesses it's also extremely effective at managing chronic pain. That's actually one of the oldest forms of hypnosis. And it's, it's, for, it's used for managing things like fibromyalgia and skin conditions and irritable bowel syndrome. The one that surprised me the most personally was that it's actually approved by the National Cancer Institute as a method of treatment. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so how does it work in a, in a general session when your client comes in? Talk me through the process. Yeah. So the first thing we always break down those misconceptions and they all have every, every new client has their own idea of what hypnosis is. And then we establish the truth of what hypnosis really is. So typically before I begin a session, we have like a, a free 15 minute call where we talk about what it is they want to work on. So I know like roughly what techniques we're going to use in this in this session. So we then break, we then walk through essentially what we're going to do just to give them a kind of an outline of a roadmap of where we're going. And then we have the induction where we bring them, or I should say, I bring them to that theta frequency. And then the bulk of the session is that middle part of hypnosis. And in so a hypnotist, I should say any hypnotist can really hypnotize a person into that theta state, but it takes someone with a little bit more training to really know what to do when you're down there to make changes. And so that's where I had to go a little bit further beyond the stage show training and learn the techniques from psychology and some techniques from neuroscience to really know what we were working with down there. And we use those techniques. There are a lot of different frameworks of hypnosis, but it all comes down to something that we call the meta model. And the meta model is something that is like a through line that runs through most of the change work that we do in hypnosis sessions. It's all about associating someone into that negative state and then breaking them out of it and then associating them into the positive state that they want instead. And then we collapse the two together. And just like in physical senses, the brain cannot hold two ideas in the same space at once. And so typically, the, the positive charge will override the negative charge. And if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't just go to neutral, it will be a net positive. So that's kind of the idea of most of the hypno hypnosis techniques that we're actually using in the session. Then we give, I should say, I give a few beneficial suggestions just to make sure the, the changes are going to last and to give, I don't know, give them some bonuses perhaps. And then I bring them out of hypnosis back to that beta waking consciousness. And there's usually 10 to 15 minutes left in the session. And that's typically where I put them into a secondary hypnosis session. That's, I don't know, like five minutes long or something, just to double check that the changes that we made 
are actually going to last beyond the session, that they're not just linked to that session and they're not just feeling good, that they're actually changed. Mm, mm, that's awesome. Talking about the brain science component again, can you tell me what are some of the most fascinating things you've learned about the way the brain works from studying hypnosis? Mm. I am constantly amazed at how, how much control the, the mind has over the body and the body has over the mind. We talk a lot about, about posture and when I'm working with anxiety and you know, building confidence for business people and the, and the like. But I find that there is such a strong connection between the two. Like your, your mind can heal your body. That's the reason that you can use hypnosis to help with cancer. It's the reason that you can use it to stop pain. What I am so amazed by is that we can communicate with our mind. We, we can tell our mind that this, this redundant signal of fibromyalgia, this pain that we know we've got and we don't need to feel that pain anymore, we can show it that it's actually blocking out the pain that might be helping us and alert, alerting us to a problem and then say, can you reduce that pain? And it, it responds, it does that for us. I'm just so amazed at how much control we can actually exert over our, over our bodies and over our emotional states. When I was dealing with my own mental health, I thought that emotions were something that just happened to me. And through meditation and eventually hypnosis, I've come to learn that hypnosis or that emotions are things that we really, we really can control. They may be stimulated by triggers in our environment, but it really comes down to our reaction. And you can change your reaction so easily in hypnosis and with other techniques. Mm, yeah, that is so awesome. And talking about your journey when you first got into meditation and hypnosis, that was all pretty much self-driven. So what were some of the practices that you used when you were first starting and then getting into more of the hypnosis side? When I was first starting out, I was using a lot of, of like phone apps for meditation. I, I tried a bunch of them and I eventually settled on Headspace, which is a pretty popular one. And I was using that for the just learning the, the essentials of meditation. But then I paired it with the secular Buddhism podcast and being raised in a Christian household, that was also very far off the radar. And I, I, I kind of fell in love with that. And so pairing those two things, it gave me a spirituality, a lifeline that I could hold on to. And those were my early tools when I was first starting to come out of this depressive episode. Eventually I found hypnosis, as we mentioned, and I was using tools like changing the body posture and breath work. And those aren't essentially hypnosis, but they've got some ties. And so when I was first learning self-hypnosis, I was essentially just putting myself into a, into the theta state just to be there, just to practice it. And going to that theta state, it's very similar to going into a guided meditation. And so I was essentially giving myself a guided meditation just to, just to practice. And that alone really helped me because every single time our minds enter trance, it's healing for our body. Our minds have a chance to shut down for, for a brief moment and our body has a chance to catch up. It's the same reason that sleep is healing. It's the same reason that meditation is so good for us. And so even if 
even if I'm not helping a person with a direct problem in hypnosis, just putting them into trance, I've found is extremely beneficial. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice for people who really struggle to meditate when they feel like they can't get their brain just to be still? I do. My first point of advice is to, to shorten the length of time that you meditate. I think when I was first starting out, I started at 20 minutes and then I went down to 10 and then I went down to five. And then I was like, maybe I can just do like two minutes. And like, that was a, that was a time period that I could really get a good handle on. Meditation, it's all about knowing what it feels like, because unless you know really what it feels like, you don't know when you're off course. And so I would say start with something small and just be able to quiet your mind and, you know, get into it and feel what it feels like. Uh, guided meditations are an excellent place to start because they give you that feeling much more easily than just sitting there. A simple meditation that I found is just to notice the, the temperature change at the tip of your nose, if you're breathing out of your nose, to notice when you breathe in, how it gets cold, and when you breathe out, how it gets hot. And that's all you focus on. Do that for like two minutes, and that's a great starter meditation to learn what it feels like. And yeah, that's where I'd say, what I'd, that's where I would start. Mm, yeah, that is a really good one. And then once you progress into trying to do the longer, more pointed meditations, do you have any other practices that you still do yourself? I do. So I, for a while, I stopped meditating because I thought, you know, I, I'm a hypnotist, like I can just hypnotize myself better. But they're two kind of different muscles. They're similar, but they're, they do different things. And so now my daily practice is to do a 20 minute meditation and then the 10 minute self-hypnosis. And for the longer meditations, it really helps to have a guide, whether that's an app, whether that's a teacher that you meet in person or on Zoom, whether that's a group of people that you just bounce ideas off of. When you are in meditation or you're attempting to learn meditation for the first time, you're attempting to hit a target that you, you don't really know what it is. We uh, all try to pinpoint exactly what meditation feels like and what it's what it does for our brains, but we haven't really been able to express that very well to other people in a way that shows them that map. For me personally, I really loved Headspace or any other app. And the method they used was to start you out on guided meditations and then build up to about 20 minutes, which is a good, good intermediate to expert, I don't know, time range for a meditation. And their beginning 20 minute, minute meditations, they would check in with you every 30 seconds. And then it would be every minute. And then every, I don't know, two minutes. By the end of the course, like they would just give you a suggestion. They check on you once in the middle, you know, just remind you to focus on your breathing. And then you won't hear from them again until the very end. It's all about slowly removing those training wheels and just building up that practice. And I always encourage people to remember that it is a practice. It's a, it's a lifelong practice. It's not something that you, you master once and then you're finished with it. Even though I've been meditating and doing hypnosis for a while, I still struggle with it from times. There are days that it doesn't go very well. And that's just, that's just something I've got to deal with. I've got to get back on the horse and try again tomorrow. And I find that over time, it's only through looking back that I realize just how far I've come in meditation. I would say continue to have hope and just 
stick with the practice because it really does have some amazing benefits. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. And you mentioned breath work earlier. Is that something that you still practice as well? I do. So when I work with anxiety clients, I give them tools that they can use in between sessions if in case their panic flares or something like that. And I always come back to breath work is the first thing I teach because it's so simple. I mean, you've got the breath with you every single moment of your life and you can do it anywhere and no one really knows what you're doing. And so I start off with the standard 7-Eleven breathing it goes by many names like 478 or box breathing. Essentially, you're just breathing out for longer than you're breathing in. And that simple act triggers the vagus nerve in reverse and tells your, it essentially says your body says it's okay. So your mind should believe it's okay. And your mind says, all right, I'll go with that. And it's a very simple way to kind of trick the button, the mind into feeling calm. I mean, everyone tells you, you know, just take a deep breath and it sounds so cliche, but when you look at the science and the practice of this that has been around for thousands of years it really starts to make sense. Yeah, I think just breathing, obviously we do it all day, every day, but it's not something that we're really taught, at least, you know, probably in Western cultures as mm -hmm. a pointed practice to be able to use. I think it'd probably be really beneficial to learn this as children going through because it's so powerful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If, <laughs> if I had some of these techniques when I was growing up or in you know, middle school, high school, those rough years, I don't know, life would have been amazing. I, I don't know if it would have been perfect, but I think I would have made a lot more progress much, much faster in my journey. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the stage hypnosis. Mm -hmm. I want to know, is it different when you're working with a large group of people to put them into a hypnotic state compared to working with one person in a session? It is. So when you're working with a bunch of people, you, you don't get to focus on their reactions as much as you do with one person. And the, the funky thing about hypnosis is that a hypnotist can never really know what's going on inside your head. They never know exactly where a person is on that scale of trance. And so they're reading external cues to kind of judge where they're at in that process. The problem with that is that everyone has those cues a little bit differently. So some common, some, I should say some common cues are uh, just general relaxation and extended lower jaw, a little bit of flushing in the face and things like that. I've seen things on, I've seen volunteers on stage who exhibit those extremely heavily, like they're flushed and bright red. I've had people, you know, slide out of their chairs because they're so relaxed. And then there are some people who are stiff as a board the entire time. And you ask them afterwards, like, how was that for you? Were you even in hypnosis? And they're like, I was so deep. It's just a different reaction for every single person. On a stage, you can really tailor that because you've got, you've got 30 volunteers to work with and you're able to send volunteers back. Now with a stage show, your one goal is to entertain the audience and to make sure the volunteers have a good time, you know, as an extension of that. It's not really to help every single person on that stage go into deep hypnosis. Like if you've got someone who is stiff as a board and that's not a really uh, interesting reaction, you send them back to the audience because you want to focus on the ones who are getting the really big laughs. And so while hypnosis on the stage is really linked to 
hypnosis one-on-one, like in a clinical setting, it's, it's very different. It's a showmanship kind of hypnosis. You're using the same basic foundations, but in a much different, in a much different way. And when someone asks me when I'm working with them in clinical hypnosis, they say, isn't that, you know, isn't that kind of, kind of gimmicky if you're doing this on stage and doing it as a uh, clinical hypnotist? And I say to them, if I can, if I can hypnotize 30 complete strangers who have just volunteered, who've literally just met me on this stage, imagine how much stronger and how much more practice I'll have for working one-on-one on this specific issue with you. Mm, Yeah, that is a really good point. When someone is in a hypnotic state, do they remember what happens when they come out of it with like the stage stuff, for example, when I don't know, you're doing all things like walking like a chicken and that kind of thing. Do you remember that experience or is it more like you dreaming and asleep? That really depends. There are some people in hypnosis who naturally have amnesia for the entire process. That that's kind of rare, but it, it does happen. I so I've been on both sides of the stage show dynamic. I've been the hypnotist and I've been the volunteer in a couple of different shows. And my experience of it, at least, is that I'm aware the entire time. I'm hearing every single suggestion that the hypnotist is giving. And I remember once they told me to impersonate a cactus, and I was I was like, this is this is odd. I'm not really sure I want to be a cactus. And as soon as that thought popped up, the rest of my mind was like, eh, why bother? Let's go be a cactus for a while. And so at least in my experience, it's that y- your limitations, your inhibitions are, are removed to a point. You're not going to do anything crazy dangerous or outside your moral code, but you just can't really be bothered to, to go against it because you're just up there for fun. Mm-hmm. And is that your your unconscious mind is at that point being stronger and more suggestive and your conscious mind is kind of just taking a backseat? Absolutely. In hypnosis, our conscious mind really steps back and lets that unconscious mind do its work. And that's really why you see that creativity on volunteers on stage. Someone who's never taken singing lessons, not only it suddenly has the confidence to sing, but is also very good at it because their mind is like, well, we've seen all these different um, singers. We kind of know the process. And we're going to extrapolate that creatively and really have some fun with it. Mm, mm, That's awesome. So you are also the host of the Making Meaning podcast. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. So the name Making Meaning comes comes from a phrase that my therapist told me very early in my mental health journey. And this, my therapist said to me that, we are meaning-making creatures. We take the objective world around us, we apply our filters over it, and then we make the meaning out of that story that we tell ourselves. And so every single client that I work with, I first have to break down their meaning of the world to say, you know, this might not be the only story. And then we hold up different viewpoints and apply different filters on it and say like, maybe the world actually looks like this. And that reframing really opens up the possibilities. And the other side of that is all about my own personal uh, journey for, for purpose in life. I was the kind of person who I could never hold down a job that did not fulfill me. Like I, I could do it for four months, six months, but like by month eight or something, I, I had to fly the coop. I, I just couldn't stand anymore. It just grated on me. And I realized I was searching for 
that purpose. When I kept Googling things like how to find life's meaning or something like that, it, it, Google doesn't tell you the answers like that. I eventually realized through my journeys that I had to create my own purpose in life. I had to make that meaning because no one else was going to give me a tailor-made meaning that was just perfect for me. And so on this podcast, I really look to interview people who have stepped into that lead role of their life and who are now creating their own meaning or who have created their own meaning and are really living that purpose. I interview a lot of adventurous people like skiers and hikers and travelers because that's kind of my own story. I'm really into the outdoor adventure scene, but I've got some interviews coming up with someone who left the Muslim faith and was really dealing with spirituality. And it's really all about searching for what makes our lives meaningful and how we can get there. Yeah, that's fantastic. And just finally, tell me, what is it that you love most and is the most rewarding thing about being a hypnotist? I really love that moment when a client sees that they can make the change because so many people come into hypnosis having struggled with this problem for perhaps years and they think it's something they'll probably live with for the rest of their life. And when in 90 minutes we can reduce or if or potentially completely eliminate that problem, it just lights up their entire face and you can just tell they're examining the rest of the, the possibilities of what they can do. I found that just as all negative changes build on each other and you, you know, create that downward spiral, the same thing happens with positive changes. When you create a major positive change in your life, you start building an upward spiral. Mm -hmm. So someone who manages, starts managing their health, starts improving their relationships, and starts thinking of themselves in a different way and starts, I don't know, excelling at work or in their business or whatever it is. In that moment that people realize that change is not only possible, but that it's possible for them, that's extremely powerful and it's so very rewarding. Mm, I love that. That is awesome. And Doug, how can people connect with you and find out more about what you do? Yeah, my main website is anywherehypnosis.com. And for those interested in hypnosis uh, who've never experienced it, I actually give away free hypnosis every Friday on my Instagram channel. And that is at Making Your Meaning. And if they want to find the Making Meaning podcast, they can search the Making Meaning podcast on any of the major podcasting apps, or they can find that at anywherehypnosis.com slash podcast. Excellent. And we will link all that below in the show notes. Doug, thank you so much for coming on today. It was awesome to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You can follow the links in the show notes to connect with Doug and find out more about the healing benefits of hypnosis. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with one person who would also find value in learning about hypnosis. I can't wait to have your company again next time. And until then, remember, we are only limited by what we believe we are limited.